Our story begins this morning with Jesus being invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house. And this is the second time now in the book of Luke that we've seen Jesus invited to eat with a Pharisee at their house, and it never goes well. And they keep asking, and every single time they think, now we've got him, we're going to find a way to trap him, we're going to get him to mess up or slip up or say something wrong, and we're going to nail him, and it never does. And the more they try to interact with Jesus, the more they try to bring him in and cause him to stumble, the more they become outed as not really what they appear to be. And so Jesus, of course, accepts the invitation, and he comes to dinner at this Pharisee's house. But before they eat, Jesus doesn't participate in the ceremonial washing. He doesn't wash before he eats. And now they think they've got him. They think they've got a reason to finally expose Jesus to be some sort of fraud. And it sets up for a very awkward dinner party. And Jesus takes this opportunity as the conflict begins to rise, as things begin to get heated, as the Pharisees begin to try to call him out and are astonished at his actions. Jesus takes this opportunity to lay it all out on the table and to let the religious leaders in this room know exactly what they're missing and why they have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And so this morning, as we continue learning about the kingdom through the teachings of Christ in the book of Luke, we're going to learn about the kingdom today by learning about its enemies. And we're going to look at the warnings that Jesus gives first this week, the four warnings that he gives, the woes that he gives to the Pharisees, and then next week, the three that he gives to the lawyers that are at the same dinner party. And we're going to see those warnings that he gives, and we're going to be certain that as members of the kingdom of God, that our lives would never reflect the characteristics and the traits of these religious leaders who were in opposition to the kingdom. But in fact, that we always make sure that our walk lines up with the walk of Christ, that our words line up with the words of Christ, that we live and act and move as members of God's kingdom. And so today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 44, jumping back a little bit from where we've been. And this is the word of God. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect the justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, as always, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege to hear you speak through your word. And God, we thank you also for these warnings that were given to the religious leaders by Christ so long ago that are warnings that we as your people need to heed today. 
to make sure that we never reflect the character and the nature of these Pharisees and lawyers that were in opposition to your kingdom, but that, God, our religion is the religion that seeks after you, that walks in the footsteps of Christ, that wants to be more and more like Christ every day, that's moved by grace and mercy and not by obligation or selfishness. And so, Father, teach us this morning what it means to be your children, what it means to live as members of the kingdom of God as we look at the lives of your enemies. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The very first thing that Jesus accuses the Pharisees of is that he says that they are clean on the outside only. They're clean on just the outside, but not pure or clean on the inside. And again, at this point, it just seems like if you're a Pharisee or a religious leader of the time, it's a really bad idea to invite Jesus to dinner. If you're a tax collector or a sinner, please invite Jesus over to dinner and he's going to change your life and make everything amazing as he brings the grace and mercy of God and calls you out of sin and into new life. If you are a Pharisee, it just seems like an unwise choice to invite Jesus to your house. But that's exactly what happens. Jesus is out teaching, this Pharisee invites him to dinner and Jesus obliges And in verse 37, it says, while he was speaking, he was invited to come to this table. And then 38 says that the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. The Pharisee is expecting Jesus to act a very certain way. And there was high importance placed on these kind of ceremonial washings. This idea of making sure the outside of your body was clean before you eat or before you participated in any sort of worship or act of sacrifice. The ceremonial washing was incredibly important. And so the Pharisee sees this happen and he can't believe that this man that's supposed to be some sort of teacher or prophet or people are even talking about him being the Messiah, that this man wouldn't go through the ceremonial washing process. But it's not like Jesus is against these sort of things. In fact, the two important things that we have in the life of our church, the two important ceremonial things that we have, the sacraments that we have, baptism and communion, were instituted and given to us by Christ himself. He gave us those practices. We see Jesus actively engaged in these religious and ritualistic ceremonial processes. But all throughout Scripture... These things that God commands us to do that are outward things are always outward signs of inward devotion. And we see that in communion. We see that in baptism. Baptism is this beautiful picture of the seal of God's covenant of salvation. It's a physical reminder and a physical acknowledgement that God has cleansed us from the inside out. And so on those days when we don't feel clean inside, we can remember our baptism and remember that God has made that change. The communion meal is the same way, where we are reminded that we come to the table in communion with one another and in communion with Christ, and we remember his death and his resurrection and that he has made us new if we've trusted in Christ for salvation. And the same thing is true of the ritual cleanliness, of the sacrifices, of all the things that took place under the old law. They were always designed to be means to point towards the deeper inward transformation that comes from a relationship with God. And so the Pharisees here had missed the point. And now Jesus was going to let them know. 
He says, now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside also make the inside? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. You see, we're reminded over and over again that the kingdom of God is strikingly different from any other religion or worldview or ideology that has ever existed. Because this doesn't begin with what we do to approach God, but the kingdom of God, salvation begins within us. When God takes our hearts, that the Bible says that our spirits are dead inside of us, that we are dead and guilty because of our sin, that he takes that and he makes it clean for us and then sets us out to do the work that we're called to do. When Jesus is giving out these same woes in the book of Matthew, he says that you are like bowls that are dirty on the outside, or dirty on the inside, but clean on the outside. And he says, first, you should clean the inside of the bowl, and by doing that, you'll make the entire bowl clean. In verse 41, Jesus tells the Pharisees that you are giving God what's on the outside. That you are putting all of your attention, all of your religious effort into the things that are in the exterior and the physical cleanliness when you should be focused on giving to God and to others what's on the inside first. And when you pursue God out of your heart, out of your spirit, when you pursue God from the inside out, when you love your neighbor on the inside first before you go through the motions of doing the things that we're called to do, Jesus says when you start on the inside that God will make the outside pure for you, that through that heart that seeks after God, he will begin to refine us. He will begin to make our actions and the outward things pure. But just like the Pharisees, we can become so caught up in appearances. We can be so focused on looking the right way or sounding the right way or acting the right way that we neglect what is really important. The Pharisees thought that if they could modify their behavior or clean their bodies enough that they would be acceptable to God. But we have to be careful to not spend more time on the outside than on the inside. To not spend more time on behavior modification than we do on nurturing and purifying our heart and continuing to grow in our purity and our holiness that God has given us through Christ by spending time in the Word. By spending time in prayer, by spending time in the company of other believers that give us an example of what it looks like to follow God and love God with our heart, soul, mind, and then our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves from the inside out. The Bible teaches us that God so loved the world that he gave his son that anyone who believes in him won't perish but will have everlasting life. And we are taught through the New Testament that that begins by what we call regeneration. By God reaching inside of us and going into that dead place inside of us, our spirits that are dead because of sins and trespasses, and he shocks it back to life with the beauty of the gospel, and he makes us alive in Christ and gives us those fruit of the spirit that Paul teaches us all on the inside so that we can nurture and grow that, and then out of that grace and mercy that God gives us, that will motivate our hands into action. And that's the gospel that we believe because that's the gospel that we've been taught. And so if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, then you have been made new on the inside. And God is cleaning you up on the inside so that you can be clean on the outside. And we should never exchange the truth of that gospel 
for a cheap imitation that tells us that we have to clean ourselves up on the outside first so that we'll be acceptable to people and to God. We have to start on the inside, nurture what's on the inside, and then allow that to move us to action and not find ourselves like the Pharisees who were like those dishes that are very clean on the outside, who look good from the outward appearance, but on the inside are full of wickedness and greed. Jesus then tells these Pharisees that they are guilty of following the letter of the law, but not the heart of the law. In this next passage, in Matthew's telling of this story, Jesus adds in another analogy. He says that you are straining out the gnat, but swallowing a camel. That's a really strange analogy, especially with our mindset on this thing. But when you talk about this, when Jesus says this thing about the gnat and about the camel, it would have resonated really deeply with the people that heard it. Because the rabbis during this time were so very concerned with cleanliness. And so as they were taking the wine, they would strain their wine over and over again to make sure that no impurity was inside of it. And a gnat was the smallest or one of the smallest unclean animals in their tradition. And so they would make sure that they would strain the wine as much as they could so that not even a gnat would be inside of it. Because if they were even to swallow that gnat, they would believe that they would be completely unclean. But Jesus says you are meticulously straining your life to get the gnats out. But meanwhile, you're swallowing a camel. A camel was the largest unclean animal. And so he says you're going through all these minor details to make sure to pick every little nit out of your life. But meanwhile, you're doing something that is making you even more unclean. So what is that? He says, woe to you in verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. The Pharisees were responsible for tithing out of their crop, out of their, their production from their fields. And Jesus is saying, you are doing that so well. In fact, not only you, are you giving out of your large crops, but you are giving 10% out of even the small things. Out of the mint and out of the rue and out of the herbs, you are going to every detail of the law. You're going beyond what some people would expect you to even be responsible for doing. But you're neglecting justice and the love of God. You see, the Pharisees were going to great lengths to strain out the gnat. They were saying, we are going to tithe down to every little bit that we have. We are going to give out of even the most minuscule, seemingly unimportant things. We are going to go above and beyond the calling of the law so that we can look and feel completely and totally righteous based on the law. And Jesus says, yes, you absolutely should be doing that. But you're neglecting the most important part. You're allowing in something even worse that makes you even more unclean than if you forgot to tithe on your mint. They followed the rules, but they neglected the justice and love of God. They believed that their actions would make them holy, but their hearts revealed the actual truth. They followed the law to the letter and beyond, but they neglected its foundation. And we have to remember that God's commandments are not ritual for the sake of ritual. God's laws in Scripture are not arbitrary. But God's laws, God's commandments for God's people are all things that are based on 
God's character. They're designed to reflect God's goodness and God's righteousness. And so if our following of those commandments and those laws doesn't reflect the heart of God, we aren't doing it at all. God's laws cannot be followed fully unless others are being blessed and loved and served because that's who God is. If we look all throughout Scripture, there's always a twofold nature to the commandments that God gives. Think about the Ten Commandments, right? The Big Ten. One through four, all about our relationship with God. You won't have any other gods before me. Don't make for yourself any idols. Keep my name holy. Use my name well. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Make sure that our relationship is good and solid and that you worship me and me alone. But then the last six are all about our relationship with other people. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet what your neighbor has. Those are all about our relationships and the way that we interact with other people. When Jesus teaches us to pray, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus starts off telling us to pray that God's name would be lifted up and glorified, that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done, that God would forgive us of our sins and of our trespasses so that we can have a right relationship with God. But then he follows that up immediately by saying that we should pray that we should forgive others as God is forgiving us. And follows that up in Matthew by telling us that if we don't forgive others the way that God has forgiven us, then we're bringing condemnation on ourselves. And then, of course, when Jesus was asked about the two greatest commandments, we know that the first one is that Jesus said we should love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. The Pharisees were neglecting that second greatest commandment. And because of that, they were failing at the first. So Jesus says, you ought to be doing these things. You should be giving above and beyond what's expected of you because you should love God that deeply and it should motivate you to not simply get by by following God's commandments, but be passionate about giving and loving and serving God because he's that good, but not at the expense of others. It says your religious devotion to tithing the mint and the rue and every little herb, if it's keeping you from loving your neighbor, if it's keeping you from sharing the love of God, if it's keeping you from standing for justice, then it's completely meaningless and you're wasting your time. We cannot follow God fully without loving our neighbors deeply. And so we should follow God's commands. We should sing and pray and read scripture. We should give and tithe of our finances and of our time and of our gifts and our abilities. We should confess and come together as a church and do all these things that God has called us to do. And we should do them well and we should do them passionately. And we should go above and beyond what's asked or required of us. But we should never do that holding so tightly to those things that we neglect the heart of God's law that we neglect the heart of God himself. We should never do it at the expense of standing for the oppressed, of the broken, of loving our neighbors as ourselves and caring for those in need and loving the people that God has put in our lives with a deep and unfettered passion. We cannot be guilty of straining out the gnat, of trying to follow every little rule so tightly that it keeps us away and makes us swallow the camel. 
We need to live lives that are holistically pursuing God, both in our actions and in our hearts. Then Jesus tells the Pharisees that they're guilty of seeking favoritism. I've talked about this the past couple weeks, but if I was going to pick the best seat in the house here, I would probably make it this seat right here. In fact, I've thought about moving the pulpit right here so that I can preach under that beautiful vent that pushes all the cold air that is so valuable in this room right to that seat. But not only would it be the coolest seat in the house, but also it would make you very close to me, which I feel like would just be a really special thing for both of us. And so I would have to say that is probably the best seat in the house. Now, I don't know which seat would be the best seat in a synagogue, but whichever seat was the best seat in the synagogue, it seems pretty clear here that the Pharisees wanted it. In verse 43, Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. And these greetings in the marketplace that Jesus is talking about, aren't, it's not simply that they like to talk with people. I love the way the Reformation Study Bible describes these greetings because it just sounds very eloquent. It says that the greetings were elaborate salutations, showing recipients to be important people. And so this wasn't just a, hey, how are you doing? This was, oh, hello, you are so important and you are so amazing and you are so wise. Please come into my presence because it would be an honor just to spend a moment with you. It was the kind of greeting, the kind of salutation that would puff you up a little bit and make you feel like the most important person in the room. And Jesus says, that's what you're after. You want to walk into the synagogue and everyone to move so that you can have the best place. You want to walk around the marketplace and have people falling out in front of you because you're the great Pharisees and so righteous and so holy and so wonderful. That's who you are. And he reveals here that all their behavior modification all their extra tithing, all the way that they follow these rules. It was all for this. And as Jesus says this, that this is their ambition to have this celebrity, to have this sense of righteousness that other people see, it shows that not only did they not care about other people, but in reality, they didn't care about God at all. You see, religious practice is always going to be offered to a deity. It's always going to be offered to a God. That's what religious practice is. That's what religiosity leads towards. But for these Pharisees, their God was not Yahweh. Their God was not the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Their God was not the God of Jesus. Their God was looking back at them in the mirror. Everything that they did, every motivation that they had was all so that they could glorify themselves and receive attention and receive praise so that people would think that they are the most holy, righteous, and respectable people around. And the reality is that faithfully religious people draw attention. Sometimes perhaps it's negative attention, but for the most part, it's positive. If you live a faithfully religious life, if you are a particularly churchy person, then people are going to see that and people are going to usually admire it because it looks like good character. If you follow the rules, if you don't get in trouble, if you say the right things, if you're always nice, if you're always kind, whatever that thing might be, that's going to attract attention. And the Pharisees took that attention because it can be so addicting. They took that attention and they parlayed it into privilege. And if we're not careful, we can do the same. And this requires mindfulness in our practice. 
Because we are called to walk with God. We are called to follow God's commandments. We are called to participate in these religious things that God has given us to help us grow closer with Him. But we have to be very mindful while we go about our business. And to pay attention to make sure that everything that we do is always first and foremost for God's glory alone. And that when we sing, when we pray, when we give, when we come to the table, when we go and serve and love our neighbors ourselves, when we do all of these things, when we follow the rules, when whatever happens in our lives, we have to constantly be thinking and praying that this would always be about God. Because it's very easy to get lost in the rhythm of religion. It's easy to get lost in the motions of coming to church and doing churchy things and being a churchy person. And if we're not careful, we won't remember to remember why we're doing this. That it's all about God and his glory. Remember last week as we took our little break from Luke to look at Jesus' teaching in the book of Matthew about making things better and brighter for the sake of the gospel. Jesus says that the purpose of our good works, of the things that we do, is so that other people will see those things and not glorify us, but will glorify God. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 14, helping us understand a little more about what this looks like. And in Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11, Jesus says, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But then, when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that you, when your host may come to you, he will say, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He continues speaking to the man who invited him to the banquet. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus says, for members of my kingdom, it's not your job to seek out the highest place on the table. In fact, Jesus teaches us clearly that in the kingdom of God, the greatest will be least and the least will be greatest. And so Jesus says, pursue that spot at the end of the table. Don't come for the best seat in the house, but leave that for someone else and find yourself in the back. When you invite people, don't invite people that are going to help you grow in your stature. People that are going to give you praise and honor and glory, but invite into your life the people that are poor and broken who have nothing to offer you in return. And then one day, as you act humbly before your God, your God will raise you up into the place where you'll be. One day your God will look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have served me humbly and you've been faithful over so little. Now I will put you in the place that I have designed for you. Jesus says you will be rewarded at the resurrection of the just and that when God gives us that resurrection on the other side of this life, when God gives us that reward, it will be far greater than what anyone else could ever give us. And so we have to reject this desire to seek after favoritism or praise of others, but constantly be aware that our praise should only go to God. 
and that our lives should be used to direct that glory to the name of our Father and then trust and wait that in his timing, he will raise us up to the place where he's called us to be. And then finally, Jesus says that the Pharisees were causing others to fall. In the old law, there were several things that could happen to you that if you interacted with certain objects or certain people, that that contact would make you ceremonially or spiritually unclean. One of those things was walking over a grave. And so if you were going about your day and walked over a grave, you would make yourself ritually and ceremonially unclean to be in the presence of God and to worship God in the midst of the people. And so to avoid this, they would mark the graves very well so that you wouldn't happen to just be walking along and accidentally walk over a grave. You would know where it was so that you could walk around it. And with that picture in mind, Jesus gives maybe his most condemning woe to the Pharisees. In verse 44, he says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. You see, the Pharisees weren't simply rebelling against God's kingdom, but they were taking other people with them. And just like religiosity can attract attention, religiousness can attract followers. And when someone claims to be religious, people watch. Sometimes that's to watch and see if that person is who they say they are and if they're going to fall and if they're going to be hypocrites like so many other people I've seen in their lives before. But usually, people watch looking for an example to be followed. And the Pharisees, again, on the outside, they looked good. They looked the part. They were ritually clean. They were in the synagogues. They were the leaders of the synagogues. They kept the oral law. They tied that of everything they had. They checked all the boxes. And so they looked good. They looked holy. They looked righteous from the outside. And so people followed them but they were really just unmarked graves. And when the people followed this religion of the Pharisees, they were following them away from the kingdom of God. This type of self-gratifying, others-neglecting religion can be contagious. I think it's been one of the things that's plagued our country since its inception. That we can have our religion without being concerned about real, genuine pursuit of holiness, without reaching out for other people and only trying to receive praise and honor for ourselves. And clearly it's been a problem since the beginning. You learn a lot about this idea when you have children. Because children are like living, breathing, walking recorders that just follow you and say things that you say and do things that you do. And sometimes it's precious. Because the this, this self-indulgent part of you sees your kid doing something, and maybe I think I'm kind of cute. And so when I see my daughter do, does something that looks a lot like me, I think that is especially cute. Sometimes they reflect things in me that are not particularly cute. And when you see that happen to you in a 36-inch platform, it is very alarming and very unnerving. But they watch, and they follow, and they learn, and they ask questions, and they want to go where you go and do what you do. And the same thing is true when it comes to religion and spirituality. We're all looking for someone to follow. We're all looking for someone to lead us closer to Christ and closer to God. And these Pharisees were taking that position, and they were leading people away from where they should go. And so we need to be very careful that if we claim to be followers of Christ— 
that if we claim to be Christians, that we are doing that well. And again, that doesn't mean that we just pretend to be perfect or that we try to go above and beyond just so people will think that we're the best of the best, but that means that we have to follow where Christ leads, that we have to walk in the steps of Jesus, that we have to keep our eyes so fixed on Christ that when people follow us, we are leading them directly to our Savior and directly to the grace and mercy of God. We have to be focused on living our lives as ambassadors of the kingdom, listening to the teaching of Christ, listening to the teachings of Scripture, and paying attention to the way that God has called us to live, to begin by loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to allow that to move us, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and never be distracted by the things around us, but keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, keeping our steps in sequence with His, so that as we walk towards Christ, and as people see us doing that, they will not only glorify God, but they will fall in line behind us and follow us as we follow Christ, as we follow the example examples of those who have lived and breathed in front of us, leading us to the doorstep of the gospel. And so we need to be aware of these woes, of these warnings that Jesus gives the Pharisees. And we need to look at these things as examples to be rejected and build both our religion and our life as members of the kingdom in a way that reflects our king and not his enemies. Because these feel like very big examples of things that could go terribly wrong. But the truth is, all of these woes are things that live inside and breathe inside of each one of us because of our sin, because of our weaknesses. And so we need to daily commit our lives to following Christ. And to rejecting these characteristics of the enemies of the kingdom so that we can live as examples of Christ in the community and in the world in which God has placed us. So let's pursue Christ. And as we do, let's share our faith with others. Let's share the good news and the hope of the gospel with others. Let's do good works for others and on behalf of others so that as they see our good works, as they see our practices, that they would see our God and they would give him glory and that we would lead them to the truth of the gospel of grace through Christ. Let's pray.